Good morning to each. I want to share with you a message today that is entitled, Tested and Triumphant. And the subject matter is your faith, tested and triumphant. I'm going to read to you from James chapter 1, beginning at verse 1 and concluding at verse 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, writing to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Thus far, the reading of his word. His name was Ed Trenert. Ed touched my life deeply, though he has been in heaven these past 20 years. Never forget Ed Trenert. He was a veteran of the wars. Not only was he a veteran of the wars, but he was a leading individual in this state with regards to the veterans. He spoke all over the place. He was a strong witness to the activity that was done and the freedoms that were won. It was some 20 years ago, and he stood uh, in our pulpit for a word of importance. He did so on the 4th of July, and he did so on Veterans Day, that second Sunday in November. He said something that I don't think I had ever heard before, or if I had heard it before, it didn't register like it did when Ed Trenert sat, uh, stood there in that pulpit uh, and uh, shared some words with the congregation. Uh, the words that he said, uh, freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. And maybe it was the tone of his voice or the look in his eye when he said that, I just kind of shuddered. And then he went on to explain over the next two or three minutes what he meant by freedom is not free. I want to share with you a certain reality that maybe you understand and maybe you don't. I want to share with you that faith, this most powerful weapon that God has given us, to fight the one invisible agent named Satan, the fallen angel. I want to share with you that faith, this weapon of God, how is this weapon cleaned? How is it purified? How is it kept ready? How, is, how does it grow? It grows only under stress. Faith is not free. Faith is not only a weapon that is used to fight against Satan, but you see, faith is also a conduit to God. Uh, you pick up this thing called prayer and you're emailing God or you're texting God or you're talking to Him on the phone. So faith, not only a powerful weapon, the most powerful weapon to fight against sin, death, and the power of the devil, but it's also that conduit that leads us to God. Faith is not free. I said last week in the message that it cost Jesus his life. 
I said last week as we celebrated a patriotic weekend, I said that any man or woman who went over to the wars, World War I or World War II or Vietnam or any of our wars, they did not say to their wife, they did not say to their friends, I'm going over there to die. They said, I'm going to go fight for my country and I'm going to come back and I'm going to help you raise the children and mom and dad, I'm I'm going to be here and I'm going to help you as you get older. No soldier ever said, I am going over there for the distinct purpose of dying. There is only one who ever made that declaration. And that one is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Right there in Philippians 2, verses 5 and following, he said, I'm equal with God, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is God's children here on this earth from one generation to the next until God comes for the last time. Starting with Adam and Eve and ending with the last person born on this earth. That is the most important thing. And He comes down here with one purpose. Purpose is not to teach, it's not to do miracles, though that was part of His ministry. His purpose was to die on that cross. His purpose was to die. He said to God, I'm going down there to die. He said to the angels, I'm going down there to die. He said to His disciples, I'm going to die on the cross for mankind's sin. The disciples tried to dissuade Him, but He said, get behind me, Satan. He died. Our faith is not free. We don't get our salvation by silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Christ, our faith is not free. It cost the Son of God His life. Our faith is not free from another standpoint. Your faith, as I said moments ago, your faith will only grow under duress. This faith that Jesus describes, you can say to a mountain, move and it'll move. That faith will only grow that strong, able to move mountains, if it goes under duress. Faith will only grow when it's facing some enemy. Faith will only grow when it's fighting some battle. It was never meant to be static. Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, I'm giving you milk, not solid food. You're not ready for the solid food yet. When you're ready for the solid food, I'm going to bring it to you. It's only when solid food comes that our faith grows. And the solidity of the food that we eat and the solidity of our faith, it only becomes firm and strong when we are under battle. Let me put it this way, First John 5, 4, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, everyone born of God has overcome the world. The very word overcome indicates that some battle is being fought. You have to overcome something. Whoever is born of God has overcome the world. And then it says God's commands are not burdensome. This is the victory... A victory implies that you've been going through some battle. This is a victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Who is the one that overcomes? The one who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the one who overcomes. I want you to notice that when it talks about victory, and when it talks about overcoming, 
it is implying that you have a weapon that is more powerful than the enemy has. And the weapon you have that helps you to overcome, and the weapon that you have that gives you victory, is this weapon called faith. It grows when the battles are going on. Let me talk a little bit about James. The epistle of James, the first Christian document given to the world, is the earliest of all the New Testament scriptures. It comes before the gospel and before the epistles, written somewhere between 45 and 50 A.D. It's more like the Old Testament writings and its content than any other book in the New Testament. And it forms a, a natural bridge between the Old Testament and the New. Who was the author of the book? James, the brother of our Lord. He calls himself a servant of God, but he is the natural brother of Jesus. Matthew thirteen fifty-five. it talks about the fact that Jesus has a mother named Mary and that he has brothers named James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. James did not get very much ink in the Bible. There's not much publicity for the poor man. The publicity goes to the Simon Peters and the Apostle Pauls and the Matthews. And James was no missionary. Jesus had said, Acts 1.8, Stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And when He comes upon you, then you be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the other ends of the earth. Others went to Samaria, and others went to Galilee, and others went to the other ends of the earth, but not James. He stayed right there in Jerusalem. James, one would never have figured that he would become the prominent figure in Christendom that he was. Because James, at one point, you look at Mark chapter 3, I think it's verse 21, it says that Mary said to her other sons, Jesus is insane, he's lost his mind. I want you to go down and get him, I want you to bring him back before he hurts himself, before he hurts someone else, before he brings any more shame to our family. James, at the early part of Jesus' ministry, thinks his brother is insane. How in the world does he go from those thoughts to becoming such a prominent figure in the early Christian church? You look at 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, and it says this, Jesus on that first Easter, he appeared to this person, this person, then he appeared to 500 people gathered at the same time, and the very next individual mentioned is James. He appeared to James, his own brother. And when he appears to James, James, like the disciples when they saw him, James said, my Lord and my God. He didn't say, my brother. He said, my Lord and my God. And I firmly believe that when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, that James was one of the 120 people in that room when the Holy Spirit descended. And when the Holy Spirit descended, he was a changed man. He became the first pastor of the first Christian church in Jerusalem. It was a very difficult time. He's new in the faith. His faith isn't all that strong. 
But as Jesus said in Matthew 17, if your faith is as small as a seed, you can say to a mountain, move and it'll move. James is a new believer. Now he's the first pastor of the first Christian church. If faith grows when it's under battle, why his faith must have grown extraordinarily because the battles he faced were extraordinary. The one place you didn't want to be a pastor was Jerusalem. If you were a Christian pastor just beginning a new church, you didn't want to be in Jerusalem. You had three great enemies. The one enemy was the pagan religions that were all around you in the city. They offered things that Christians didn't offer. They offered feasts and parties and temple prostitutes. They offered ease and pleasure. They said, fix your eyes on the things that are seen and get involved in everything, no matter how decadent it might be. Get involved in anything that your eyes see. Here comes the Christians. And instead of talking about ease and pleasure, they are talking about obedience. They are talking about carrying the cross. They're talking about not fixing your eyes on the things that are seen, but on the one who is not seen. Enemy number one, the pagan religions. Enemy number two, here's James with his brand new face. And here comes enemy number two, and it's the Romans. And the Romans demanded worship of the emperor as God. And if you worshiped any other god, it might cost you your life. There was a third set of enemies. They had on the robes. They had on ecclesiastical robes. You looked at them and you thought, man, they're on James's side, man. They got uh, robes on. They're part of the clergy. The problem with uh, the Pharisees and the Jewish law officers was that they were still proclaiming that Jesus Christ needed to be put to death. His followers needed to be put to death. And the traditions of the fathers held up. What were the traditions of the fathers? They weren't the Ten Commandments that God gave Moses. They were the 619 other laws and ordinances that the teachers of the law said, these are the laws that one must follow. I mentioned at one of the services last week, that when Pastor James got up into the pulpit on that Sabbath day to preach, the Jewish law officers gave him a letter and they said, we want you to, to read this, we want you to preach this. And we want you to tell the people to turn away from the cross of Jesus and get back to the traditions of the fathers. And James got up in that pulpit and out of his mouth came these words. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the Lord and Messiah proclaimed in the Old Testament. You must believe in Him. You must believe in Him. And the books of the tradition say that the Jews rushed the pulpit and they said to the people, even this just man is deceived. And uh, they took him outside of that church and they threw him down and they executed him in front of his own people. Little publicized James, but he was a concrete pillar. And what he wrote to the people was simply this. Your faith given you by God, it will stand firm in every circumstance you shall ever face.
and your faith, the gates of hell itself shall not prevail against it. And then he said, whenever you face trials of many kinds, I think he knew that his end was coming when he wrote this. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, know that the testing of your faith will develop a perseverance in your faith. And the perseverance of your faith, the strengthening of your faith, the ability to understand God better because of the persecution, the trial, the storm, that perseverance in your faith will finish its work. And by the time the storm is finished, by the time the trial is finished, by the time the difficulty is finished, by the time all of that is over, you will step forth from the battle. You will step forth from the storm. And you will have overcome. Because the one in you is stronger than the one in the world. And not only will you overcome, but you'll be on a different level. You'll be on a different floor. You'll be mature and you'll be complete, not lacking anything. If you're a new Christian listening for the first time ever these past weeks, understand this. This faith that you now have, if it is not tested, it will not grow. Apostle Paul was as strong a man as you can ever imagine. Saul becomes the Apostle Paul. The killer of Christians now becomes the advocate for Christianity. Second uh, Corinthians 12, verse 10. He says, God, a storm has come. I want you to get rid of it. He said, God, an affliction is troubling me. I want you to get rid of it. I don't know whether it's physical, mental, social, emotional. I don't know, but he had an enemy. And he said, God, I want you to get rid of this enemy. It is hurting my faith and it's hurting my ability to serve you. You know what God said to him? He said to him, Apostle, you keep bothering me about this. This is the third or fourth or fifth or tenth time you've mentioned this to me. I'm going to say this to you. The storm is going to continue. Whatever affliction you have is going to continue. Some storms God removes. You pray to Him and you say, God, uh, may the cancer go into remission, and it does. Uh, some storms disappear. You get a phone call. You've been waiting for three months for this phone call. It finally came. They offer you a job. The storm is over. But some storms remain. Some illness comes into your life and you have it until the last breath you breathe on this earth. Some storms remain. But God said to the Apostle Paul, the storm will strengthen your faith. And then he does a, does a little math with the Apostle Paul. He says, how, here's how the storm is going to strengthen your faith. Since your faith is always battling the storm, since it's always in conflict with the storm that Satan is sending, your faith will keep you close to me. And you will grow stronger in that faith because of this battle that is going on, and sometimes it's quieter and sometimes it's louder, but your faith grows stronger. My dear granddaughter, Cece, she said the other day, she showed me her muscles, man, she's seven years old. She showed me her muscles and she said, Papa, I'm growing into my biceps. 
I never heard that phrase before. I'm growing into my biceps. When you are battling something, you are growing into your faith. And God said to the Apostle Paul, why would I take away the storm that is making your faith stronger? Why would I risk taking that away? Because maybe then you'd walk away from me and figure you don't need me. But as long as a storm is going on every once in a while in your life, you keep close to me. My strength will be sufficient for whatever weakness you might have. And you know what the Apostle Paul said? He actually said, thank you, God. Thank you for that answer. When I am weak, then am I strong. Amen, right? If you're Baptist out there, man, you're saying amen. If you're Lutheran, you're just nodding your head. That's all right. James was saying the old cliche. He's saying, I never told you it'd be easy being a Christian. Never told you it'd be easy being a Christian. The key word of this portion in James is a Greek word, parasmos. And that Greek word, parasmos, is translated uh, it's translated as a trial that you go through. It's not a temptation into some sin. It's a trial that you go through. Consider it pure joy when you face parasmos of any kind. In the English sense of the word, it means temptation into sin. In the Greek sense of the word, it means a testing. It's a temptation that God allows directed to an end. And the end is that the one tested should emerge stronger and pure. If the end result of temptation, the testing that temptation brings in the English sense of the word, it's... I conquered the sin this day. I didn't fall into the temptation. I didn't have any alcohol today. I didn't watch any pornography today. I didn't do this. But in the Greek sense of the word parasmos, the end is not resisting some temptation to sin. The end of parasmos is to have a faith that is stronger and pure than it was before the battle was engaged in. Now, do you understand what I'm saying? A young bird trying to fly tests its wings. That's parasmos. The queen of Sheba came to test the wisdom of Solomon. That's parasmos. God tested Abraham when he demanded the sacrifice of Isaac. That Greek word is parasmos. When the Israelites came into the promised land, God did not remove the people that were already there. The giants in the land stayed there. Twelve spies were sent in the promised land. Ten spies came back and said, those guys are nine feet tall. We're going to be wiped out. Two spies, Joshua and Caleb, they said, we can overcome them. Numbers chapter 13. He sends them out into the wilderness because their faith is not very strong. And by the time they've been in that wilderness for 38 more years, their faith is exceedingly strong. They've been without food. They've been without meat. They've been in the desert where there was no water. They've been attacked by the Hittites and the Amalekites and the Girgashites. They have been through hell in those 38 years. But the hell became a heaven, didn't it? 
Because in the midst of that parasmos, the hell became a heaven because God was there. You look at Mount Golgotha, you say, that's hell. No, it's heaven. It's heaven. Thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. All of a sudden, hell became heaven. All of a sudden, the death of Jesus, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken you? It becomes heaven because his work is finished. The hell of that time in the wilderness became heaven because here comes the manna and here comes the quail and here comes the ditches that are dug and all of a sudden they're filled with water and here all of a sudden Moses strikes a rock and the water comes pouring forth. Here are the snakes that are biting the people, everyone's dying. And here Moses erects a cross in the wilderness and the people look to the cross and they're saved. you understand? That what you are going through in your life, that is a great trial and a great nightmare, it is parasmos. It feels like hell to you because you don't understand what God is doing, but it's heaven because He's there. Your hell becomes heaven because God is there. And when God is there, the hellish part disappears. And what you're left with is heaven. It's hell because we don't understand. But it's heaven because God does. True story to close. A few years ago, a baby boy was born with a deformed foot. And as the boy grew, that deformed foot became a severe handicap to the child. His father loved the boy very much. He took the boy to one doctor after another all over the country. No one could help. They said there was no cure. There was nothing they could do. <laughs> you know what that father did? He bought every book he could find on the subject. He memorized the books. He learned every bone in the foot. He studied every articulation, the tendons, the nerves, the muscles. And the father made a strange-looking box with screws and felt washers at various angles. He took his son and he put that deformed foot in that strange-looking box and he tightened the screws. The little boy cried and the father tightened the screws more. The father would come home from work and the boy would begin to cry because he knew what was going to happen the father would take uh, the foot and he would put it in the box and he would tighten the screws day after day, week after week, month after month. And the father's tears were mixed with the boy's tears. But the father tightened the screws. The day came when the father unloosened the screws, opened the box and said to his son, Stand, child, stand up. And the boy stood erect for the first time in his life. As the days passed, the boy gained strength in his foot. He walked erect. Then he began to run. There was no deformity. The boy grew up and he understood why the father inflicted the pain. And the boy, as an adult, wept for joy whenever he thought about the love of his father and the wisdom of his father. 
The father, being human, might have tightened the screws one turn too much, but our Father in heaven never does. He knows exactly how much we can bear. He lets the cold north wind blow against us just that much, but not too much. 1 Corinthians 10.13 is a promise you hold on to. God won't allow you to be tested above that you're able. That's what He promises. God has a purpose in what He does. He means it for our good. Our faith becomes stronger. And our lives become purified. I say to you at the end what I did at the beginning. Your faith, when it goes through trials, it will not become weaker, it will become stronger. And I say to you what James wrote in 48 AD, Count it all joy when you fall into trials, for those trials will mature and purify your faith and your life. Heavenly Father, you always have to take the Word, and you always have to apply the Holy Spirit so that our ears just haven't heard and it never got to the heart. Your Spirit lets the Word come into our ears. If we are deaf, we have Braille, and our fingertips touch the promises of God. They go into the ear, they come through the fingers, but they have to hit the heart. And when they hit the heart, then we say what the Apostle Paul said, Most gladly will I glory then in the storms that go on, because when I am weak, then am I strong. Because the hell becomes a heaven when God's light comes. May there never be a moment, Heavenly Father, that we do not recognize your presence, your peace, and your strength. In our Lord's name, amen.